This summer, with God's help, we are looking at the seven messages, often called the seven letters, but they're more prophetic oracles, really. Uh, the seven oracles, messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, all of them in Asia Minor today, looking at the first of those messages to the church in Ephesus. Uh, we can find our reading today in Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. It's on page 1028. If you picked up an ESV on the way in, today, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Before we read God's word together, please join me in prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing upon it. Gracious Lord and living Father, kind giver of all good gifts, we thank you for this, your living word, the double-edged sword which proceeds from the mouth of our Savior. Help us to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly listen and digest, that we should hold fast to the truth of life which you have given to us. O Lord, by your Spirit, help us to see our Savior and his glory in this passage. Enthrall us with his love for us and fill our hearts with love for him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, suppose that tomorrow you opened your mailbox and received a survey. The Barna Research Group is conducting some market research for their next publication. They want to know what Christians think about the church. Specifically, they want to know about what Christians think about the threat facing the church and the biggest obstacles the church in America has to overcome. And so the survey is very short. It's only one question. It's a fill-in-the-blank, and Barna wants to know. The greatest threat facing Christianity in America is fill-in-the-blank. How would you answer that question? How would you even begin? How would you even begin to wrap your mind around the many answers you could give? Probably a lot of things that would factor in how each of us would answer that question. It might have to do with how old you are where you were raised, if you're from the South or the Midwest or the Northeast, it might have to do with the kind of church that you grew up in or the kind of church you 
attend now. It has to do with whether in some other congregation somewhere somebody gave you a cold shoulder and you still haven't gotten over it. It might just have to do with how pessimistic you're feeling about the church on a, on a given day when you open that letter, but there are lots of ways and, and things that would factor in. I, I suppose some of us would identify the biggest threat to the church in America as something that is essentially outside of the church. You know, we live in a society that is, is no friend to biblical Christianity. And America is awash, full of immorality, and, and the world has no stomach for the truth of Scripture, and so the primary threat, our primary struggle is the temptation or the struggle to, to keep the, the influence of the world at bay. Maybe that's how you would answer that question. Others would point to something that is inside the church. The biggest threat to Christianity is biblical illiteracy or doctrinal laxity. If only we weren't so wishy-washy. Maybe our worship is too man-centered and not God-centered enough. Maybe we have no zeal for evangelism. Maybe we haven't cared for the poor or the oppressed. Maybe we lack fervent prayer. Maybe the church is too wrapped up in politics, or maybe you think the church isn't political enough. There are lots of ways that we could answer. Maybe it's materialism or gossip or hypocrisy, and we could go on. Believe me, I could go on. But I wonder how many problems we could name, how many threats to the American church we could name before we identify the problem that faced the church in Ephesus. Who would be so bold among us to say, actually, the greatest threat facing the church is a love, a lack of a love, rather, for Jesus Christ? It's difficult to diagnose. It's far easier to look at the things that we can see and we can measure and we can say, well, we're okay here and not okay there. But to, to, to think about the, the approach of our hearts toward the Lord of the church, that's a lot more difficult to wrap our minds around. But how many visible problems would we identify in the church before we're forced to trace them all back to one common unseen denominator? Jesus in his earthly ministry was asked, what is the greatest and the first commandment? And you know how he answered. The first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. And the second commandment is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hangs all of the law and all of the prophets. Understand what Jesus was saying there. It is on love for God and the love for neighbor, which emanates from love for God. It's on love for God that all of the obedience and the faithfulness of the Old Testament believer hinge. And the question for the church is, has that pattern changed? If that pattern has not changed, if it really is love for our Lord, which ought to be primary in the church, then we will waste our time talking about zeal for evangelism and God-centered worship versus man-centered worship and care for the poor and any number of other things that you might want to identify as the hobby horse that we should turn to and think about to, to get the church on track. It will all be wasted time if we are not talking about genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The message for the church in Ephesus is a message for the church at all times. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what He says to conquered and to Redeemer. Hear what He says to you. The first thing that we hear if we're listening 
to this message to the churches is the blessing of a zealous orthodoxy. It's our first point today, the blessing of a zealous orthodoxy. Now, there really is something good in Ephesus, and we don't want to overlook that. In fact, there is a pattern that will, uh, that will come up as we look through these seven letters to the churches that first, Jesus identifies himself to the church to whom he's writing. Normally, it takes the form of one of the aspects of the vision from chapter 1. Uh, here, it's that he's the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, he identifies himself, and then uh, he commends the church for what is good in the church. And then he reproves the church for where they are lacking. Some of these seven, there is nothing good to be said about the churches. Some of them, there's nothing bad to be said about the churches. But Ephesus, like most churches, I think, not only in Revelation but throughout history, Revelation is a mixture. There is faithfulness and there is failure in the same congregation, but Jesus, who walks among the lampstands, knows what is in the church. And he begins that way. He says, I know your works. I dwell with you. I see what no one else sees. And he is quick to encourage these folks, these believers in Ephesus. Jesus rejoices at what is good among them because he knows their works. In fact, out of all the seven uh, that we're going to read about this summer, Ephesus is the church that we know most about as well. We know a little bit about them and about their history. If we know anything at all about Ephesus, we know that it was a church that was planted by faithful ministers. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 19. Paul spent the longest stretch of his missionary ministry in Ephesus, planting and raising up the church in the midst of opposition and riots. He spoke the word of God faithfully. He spoke the word of God daily in a rented hall until it says in Acts chapter 19 that through Paul's ministry, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. A faithful ministry at the start. And then, together with Paul, there was Priscilla and Aquila, and they ministered there. And, and Apollos cut his preaching teeth in Ephesus. After Paul was gone, he, he sent Timothy there, and Timothy was the one who oversaw the uh, ordination and the training of their deacons and their elders. Church tradition has it that Timothy himself was martyred in Ephesus. But as a, a drunken and, and carousing crowd of pagans came by on, a, on a, a parade day, a festival day for the pagans, uh, that Timothy stood up on a street corner and began to do some street preaching. And they beat him and they dragged him behind the procession and then they stoned him to death. And legend has it, church tradition has it, that uh, Timothy was buried there in Ephesus. And after Timothy's ministry came John the Apostle who's writing to them right now. And he was the pastor in Ephesus. So there is, if we're talking in terms of gospel pedigree, it doesn't get much better than Ephesus. This began, it was planted by faithful ministers and by God's grace in a great many ways. In Ephesus, there continued to be a faithful ministry. You notice the ways that the Lord commends this church. The faithfulness that can be found in Ephesus, it's almost amazing that all of these things could be found in the same place. He tells them that they're faithful in service. Take a look at verse 2. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. If you're in management, that is what you want from your employees. If you have a project that just has to be done, you don't want to give it to the person who's going to cut corners. You want to give it to the person who's going to toil and to persevere and continue until the job is done. 
And that was the attitude in Ephesus. They toiled for the sake of the gospel. They were faithful in their service. Again, verse 2, they're faithful in their doctrine. He says, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Speaking of John the Apostle, this is what he wrote to the churches in his first letter, wasn't it? There are many false prophets that have gone out into the world, and so faithful churches will test the spirits to see whether they are from God. They will be vigilant in doctrine. They will guard the truths of Scripture with rigor and with zeal. This is the same thing that Paul, before he left Ephesus for the last time, warned them about. Acts chapter 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem where he knew uh, by the revelation of the Spirit that he would be taken captive and he said that they would never see his face again. But he stops on his way there to give instructions to the elders in Ephesus and this is what he says, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore Be alert. Be alert, said Paul. Be faithful. Test every teaching you hear by the word of God. Be faithful in doctrine, and that is what they had done. And Jesus knows that they are faithful in their doctrine. He commends them. They are faithful also in their witness. Take a look at verse 3. He says, I know. You are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Isn't it easy to grow weary as a believer? Isn't it easy to grow cynical as a Christian, to forget that the church exists in the sight of the world for the very purpose of bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and His glory, that the church exists not to exalt her own name, but the name of her Savior, And he says, you have not grown weary. You are bearing up for my name's sake. Isn't it so easy to turn ever so slightly inward and to circle the wagons and to focus on our own issues and our own hobby horses? You know, out there is persecution. Out there is rejection and hatred in the world. But in here, it's safe and, quite frankly, it's comfortable. But he says, you've been bearing up in the scornful eyes of the pagan world. The Ephesian church was maintaining a faithful witness. And then they're faithful also in purity. Down in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. In fact, the only thing we know about them is what we find in this chapter of this book. But we do know a little bit because in the letter to Pergamum, the Lord compares them to Balaam in the Old Testament who drew away the Israelites after idolatry and immorality. And he says, he uses that phrase, and he says, just so to the church in Pergamum, you have some among you, like Balaam, who hold to teachings like this. And so there were teachers already at this early age, probably the same sorts of teachers that Paul warned them about, who were saying, you know what? We see what the pagans are doing out there, and we've got this other thing, but it's not so bad to mix it up every once in a while. Let's get out there and do a little bit of what they're doing. It's, it's pluralism. It's the spirit of the age. A little bit of this and, and a little bit of that. And your morals can go however you feel on a given day. But they haven't fallen prey to that. The Ephesians will have none of it. They hate 
their works. They are concerned with holiness and purity and moral integrity. And what a blessing. This is a rare thing in a church, to be faithful in so many ways, in so many ways to be exactly what the church was meant to be. God's consecrated people set aside their doctrine guarded, separated from the false teaching and the debased morality of the world around them. They were laborers for the kingdom of God, and this is a blessing to the church. This is a gift. If any of this sort of faithfulness shows up in us, in our church or in our own hearts, it would be foolishness to turn to pride and to say, look how well we're doing. This is a gift from the Lord. It's a blessing from His hand. Any faithfulness the church has comes from the one who is faithful, because you know your heart. Given the chance, you would go in any other direction, but the Lord continues to draw you to himself and to to guard you and to give you his purity. That's what he does for his church. It's It's such a wonderful blessing. Perhaps you remember the words of that benediction that I use sometimes to close our time together, our services of worship. Blessed be the God of peace who equips you with every good thing that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Can you imagine what that's saying there? That God gives us faithfulness and then He rejoices in the faithfulness that He works through us, equipping you to do that which is pleasing in His sight. This sort of zealous orthodoxy in the church that we see in Ephesus is a gift from the Lord. And how wonderful that he says that I'm the one who knows your works. Even if you serve behind the scenes, even if your service in the church is unseen and unnoticed and unpraised by everyone else, Jesus says, I know your works. And I delight in the faithfulness that I'm working in you, this zealous sort of orthodoxy. It's a blessing of the Lord for his people. But we need to be reminded that if ever we take a sort of outward zeal, an outward separation and a desire to be separate and different and orthodox, if ever we can take those things which in themselves are so very good and so very true and so very necessary for the church, if ever we can take those things and separate them, as so often happens, from a genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ, they cease to be a blessing to the church and they are instead a curse. This is the second thing that we see in this passage. There is a blessing in in a zealous orthodoxy, but there is a curse in a loveless ministry. This is the warning of verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. We'll let the scholars debate that all they want. This is not love of one Christian for another. This is not uh, love for charity or gospel witness or anything else like that. This is love for Jesus Christ. That is the first love of the Christian. It is the wellspring and the fountain of all other Christian loves. And Jesus comes to this church and he says, here is the greatest and the first commandment. It is still to love the Lord your God with all of your heart 
and soul and mind and strength. And on this hangs all the zeal and all of the orthodoxy and all of the faithfulness of my people. And yet, he says, you have abandoned this love. Not that it's grown cold. Not that it's, it's been forgotten or it, it's, it's flickering. You have abandoned it. It's like Israel in the wilderness who turns aside from the Lord their God to go astray after other lovers and, and, and after those that can promise them things that they think they are not getting from the Lord. You've abandoned this love. You've replaced the intimacy that they once shared with an all-consuming desire for someone or something else. We've seen examples of this, haven't we? Not just in the church. This happens in marriages. And the couple is still together, technically. And there's been no abuse. There's been no animosity, no hatred. And you can even speak about things like duty. But there's no intimacy. The marriage is empty and loveless. There's no tenderness. There's no delight one to the other. There's no thought for what pleases your spouse. And the lack of love in a marriage like that surely and slowly breaks it. It leaves it an empty shell where two people are merely living different lives in the same vicinity. This is the picture that he's giving to this church. You are zealous and you are busy and you are faithful in so many ways, and yet it's empty because you have abandoned your love for me. Can you imagine hearing the Savior speak those words to you? If anybody else had tried uh, to diagnose the Ephesian church in that way, they would have been embarrassed to silence by the busyness in the church. What do you mean we, we don't love the Lord? Don't you see our perseverance? Don't you see our doctrine? Here's our statement of faith. It's right here. Read our confession. We love the Lord. You can see it right there. Don't you see how busy we are? Don't you see how we've persevered through all of these things? How can you say we've abandoned our love, but Jesus says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, and I know your works. And it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? He cuts in both directions. He knows genuine faithfulness. He knows and his people are serving him, but he also knows the state of the heart. He sees what no one else could see. He sees beyond the works that we do to try and throw a smoke screen around our empty, loveless hearts. And he knows when a zealous orthodoxy is merely a cover to hide a loveless ministry. And the Lord exposes this sort of thing as dangerous. In fact, more than dangerous, he exposes it as damnable. This is the warning in verse 5. Notice what he says. If the Ephesian church will not repent, he says, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. We know what that means for a church. And we see it all around us in every New England town. Some little church it was founded when the, the town was organized. And they were founded around a desire to preach the gospel. And you can go down today, if you'd like to, into Harvard, and you can still see the gate somewhere on campus that speaks about truth for the sake of Christ. 
And you can see how far these organizations and these churches have fallen. And you can read that through the pages of history if you want. You can say, well, times change. People's hearts grow cold. Or you can read that history through the lens of Scripture and you can say, no, what happened is that Jesus came and he unchurched them. He removed the lampstand of their witness. He removed the grace of his presence among them. We didn't have time to look at it last time, and we probably don't have time to look at it today. But it's interesting when you look back at that vision that John saw, all of these emblems of light, and they almost descend. Well, actually, they increase. We've got it backwards. He starts with a lampstand, a flickering candle, the church on earth where Christ dwells. And then the stars, the angels of the churches, the church represented in heaven, and finally the last climactic vision that John has is that Jesus is there and the appearance of his face is, face is like the sun shining in full strength. All those things are connected. Where does the light of the flickering flame of the candle stands come from? It comes from the glory of Jesus Christ shining in her midst. And Jesus says, if you will not rekindle your love for me, I will come and remove the light of my glory and my presence among you. I will have no part in a church that is zealous for orthodoxy, yet empty when it comes to love for me. That's familiar language. It's familiar because we find it in Matthew chapter 7. In, in Revelation, he's speaking to a church, to a gathered body, and is speaking about a judgment that would come in time. But in Matthew chapter 7, he's speaking to individuals, and he's talking about the final judgment that will come. But it's, it's the same picture. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord... Did we not prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, how can you say that? Don't you see what we're doing for you? Don't, don't you see all of the stuff that we're doing? We've been so faithful. We've been so busy. We've defended your truth and we've taught your truth. We've kept the influence of the world at bay. We have exercised church discipline with rigor. Nobody does discipline better than we do. We keep our boundaries exactly where they need to be. How can you say, and the Lord says, but I never knew you. There was no intimacy. There was no delight in who I am for my people. You didn't really want to sit at my feet and hear my promises and, and delight in me. And so he says in Matthew 7, I will cast you away from me. Depart from me, he says. You see, the same thing happens in the church. Loveless orthodoxy is accounted for lawlessness, and the Lord will to those churches that are utterly orthodox in every other way and yet have no genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ, he will say, depart from me. It is dangerous and it is damnable. The same way that Paul put it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So we've seen that there is a blessing in, in zealous orthodoxy, but there is a curse and loveless ministry. Finally, we see that the Lord who exposes our sin of lovelessness gives us a way to be filled with overflowing with love 
for the Savior. He tells us, this is the third point, he tells us how we can come and receive the promise of a living intimacy with him. And there is a, a threefold approach. It sits very clearly on verse 5. It's just at the surface. We don't have to dig very far. Verse 5 tells us what do we need to do to receive the promise of a living intimacy with the Lord. Well, we need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to return. He says to them, remember from where you have fallen. Now, if you are a child of God by faith, this is going to be no burden to you. This will be a delight to your soul. It's the same uh, advice that you give to any married couple that finds that marriage is much harder than they thought it would ever be. Where do you start? You say, well, go and remember what it was like at the first. What were the memories that you made? What were the conversations that you had? What was it like to listen to one another intently, knowing that they had something to say of value to you? And we say, go back and, and remember those times and think. He tells the Ephesian church, remember from where you have fallen. There was, there was a true and a genuine love, wasn't there? And if you are a Christian, you have something that you can remember. Maybe you're one of those believers that can remember the exact moment of your conversion, the very first time that you realized that Jesus Christ was a loving Savior ready to redeem your lost soul. And how you were flooded with that recognition and you were overcome by his condescension for you on your behalf, and you were undone before him. You didn't know how to tell anybody else once it happened, once you became his, and you spoke to somebody, and they say, how's your day? I, I don't know, my whole world has been turned upside down. Let me tell you what's going on. You want to talk about zeal for evangelism. You see more zeal for evangelism in a new convert very often than you do in people that have been believers for 30 or 40 years. Why? It's part of that initial rush of love for the Savior. He says, go back and remember that. If that's you, if that's the experience you've had with him, go back and remember that. Maybe you don't remember. Maybe you are, are like so many who grow up and you say, I was raised in a Christian household. I, I don't remember a time that I didn't know that the Lord Jesus Christ was my Savior. Well, what about that time that you first realize the assurance of your salvation in him. And even now you think back on, on what it means that you are secure because of his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, once and for all on your behalf, and he has caused you to be raised to new life in him, even though you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. And that is not the sort of thing that you could have done whenever it happened. Remember, these things. What is it for you? What do you remember when you remember that first flush of love for your Savior? Maybe it's those times of quiet contemplation in prayer, just drinking in the beauty of Jesus. Maybe it's when you first began to piece together Scripture and you were reading it frantically, wishing that you could force feed yourself with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. What is it that you remember? Our first duty here is not a burden. It is to sit like Mary at the feet of the Savior and to delight in Him. Recognize that He is the Rose of Sharon, the fairest of 10,000, the most handsome of princes, the King of mercy. Our first duty is to hear His promises to you and to remember what it is to drink deeply of God's love poured out for you 
in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, remember. And if you remember, turn and repent. And repentance is an action word. It means to go from one direction, to do a 180, and to go in the other direction. And it begins with confession. It begins by confessing that we have missed the mark and confessing that we have forsaken the fountains of living water because we would rather, quite frankly, dig out cisterns for ourselves full of stagnant water. Repentance involves confessing and abandoning those paramours that take us away from the one who is our rightful husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls the bride of his church to himself. And so repent. Even if your favorite cistern is the busyness of Christian service that makes you feel so good about yourself that you've forgotten what it is to delight in Jesus, repent. Even if your favorite illicit lover is the zeal for separation and orthodoxy that allows you to take the word of God and to fire it like a missile at every single errant doctrine that you find, and yet you see that you are unable to sit quietly under the scalpel of scripture and allow it to cut away all the calluses of sin from your heart and your life, repent. It's a word that means to turn and to go in the other direction, to remember and to repent, to turn from the emptiness of sin and turn again to the fullness of Christ's love for his needy children. And then return. He tells them, return to the works that you did at first. I saw an advertisement this week, somewhere in my browsings on the internet, for a minister's digital reference library. And one of the, the selling points for this minister's digital reference library, it said, this will become, and I, I kid you not, this is the quote, this will become your personal rocket fuel for spiritual growth. The sad thing is that this was a digital library that's put together by people who ought to know better. There is no personal rocket fuel for spiritual growth unless we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and even then the analogy is strained. You see, the best-kept secret of spiritual renewal is that there's no new way to do it. We are people who love gimmicks and shortcuts, and we are looking for some novel, closely guarded trade secret that will unlock the mysteries of delighting in Jesus, and only if we pay $49.95 and five easy installments for this one trick, maybe then our hearts will be rekindled and we will regain the love that we have lost for the Lord. Oh, we fall prey to these snares and these temptations. But there's no new way to do it, and you already know that. You already know that? What does the Lord say through Jeremiah? Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. If you want to be refreshed in Christ, if you want to have your heart full of love for your Savior, you already know what you ought to be doing. We try to find a shortcut and a way around it. But the Lord has already given means whereby he grows his people in faith and delight in him. It is to be regularly in his word, to hear it, 
and to study it and to hide its truth in your heart. Spiritual renewal comes as we devote ourselves to private prayer. When our Father in heaven who is in secret sees what is done in secret, and He comes and He meets us, and He hears us, and He feeds us with the merit and the intercession of Christ, spiritual renewal comes as we give ourselves regularly, week by week, to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, to gather with His people, to stir one another up, to love and to good works, to attend to the reading and the preaching of the Word, to hear the Word sung and prayed and spoken and visibly presented in the table. You already know how spiritual renewal happens. But we want so much to go astray after gimmicks and other things, and the Lord says, leave those toys behind. Come and sit at my feet and drink deeply in my mercy and gaze on my glory and listen to my promises. He's telling us today, if we find that our love is growing cold, if we are in danger of abandoning the love we had at first, he's telling us, remember and repent and return to him. And then he adds a promise at the end. We'll see similar promises in weeks to come, and so we're not going to spend time here, but he gives us a promise to those who will return to him. He says, not that they will be removed, but that they will be brought near to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does he say? He says, return to me, and I will bring you home. I will not cast you from my presence. I will not remove you from before me. Be filled with love for the Savior, and I will bring you home. Home to the Father, and home to myself, and home where you will receive from me and delight in me, and your heart will be full. And 2,000 years on, and it is still the prime objective of God's people, still the greatest need of all of our churches and of each of our hearts to know him and to trust him and to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Join me in prayer today. O oh Lord, our God, we confess how easily we go astray after other lovers. How easily the baubles, the toys of this world, entice us. But we confess that you alone are our Lord and our God. We repent of our empty, loveless hearts. I pray that if we as a church have put more emphasis on guarding the doors of our orthodoxy than we have in guarding our hearts with the word and the beauty of Jesus Christ, that you would lead us to yourself, that you would fill us with joy and zeal for Christ our Savior, that we again would remember that first flush of love and we would turn to you. O oh Lord, keep us. Cause us to be built up and sustained in you. If there are those here today who have no idea what it is to love the Savior, oh, draw them to yourself, we pray. With cords of love, draw your elect to yourself. Give us eyes of faith to see the beauty 
of our Savior, arrayed in splendor and shining in the light of his glory. Give us hearts of faith and love to hold you by faith as you hold us in the palm of your hands and draw us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.